The sky was dark that night, darker than it had been in a long time. The only light came from the moon, and it was a cold, harsh light that showed everything in stark detail. The president could see the fear in the eyes of his advisors, and he could feel the sense of dread that had been growing for months. They all knew it was coming. They could all feel it. And then, there it was, the sound of the launch, a sound that would change the world forever. The Soviet Union had just sent up the first satellite, Sputnik, into the vast unknown regions of orbit, and America was suddenly in a race to catch up. The president knew he needed to do something, but he didn't know what. How could America compete with other nations if it didn't have enough scientists and engineers? The president had to find a fix, and fast. Okay, I'm going to spare you, the listener, from that terrible Hunter S. Thompson impersonation. I try to enlist Johnny Depp, but uh, I thought I would give him some good street cred, but but we'll get we'll get him on. Don't worry. Okay, so back to Sputnik. Within days, the people of the United States were exposed to a multitude of news reports, and we become a nation in shock. The media not only reported public concern, but also created hysteria themselves. Journalists greatly exaggerated the danger of the Soviet satellite for their own benefit. Now, the average citizen was beginning to question the competency of the American education system. The Cold War was in full swing, and the United States was behind the communists in the space race. Eisenhower responded to the chorus in his 1958 State of the Union address. The Soviet Union now has, in the combined category of scientists and engineers, a greater number than the United States, and it is producing graduates in these fields at a much faster rate. This is, for the American people, the most critical problem of all. My scientific advisors place this problem above all other immediate tasks. In the 10 years ahead, they say we need them by thousands more than we're now presently planning to have. The federal government can deal with only part of this difficulty, but it must and will do its part. The task is a cooperative one. Federal, state, and local government, and our entire citizenry must all do their share. President Eisenhower worked with Congress to step in and create the The National National Defense Defense Education Education Act, or the NDEA for short. This act allowed the government to give loans to students studying in the fields of science and mathematics to spur innovation and bring the U.S. back to the forefront of the space race. The NDEA would later be amended to remove some of these restrictions. This laid the foundation for the federal student loan program as we know it today. So in a way, we have the USSR's Sputnik satellite to thank for our ability to finance our education through loans and the $1.75 trillion hole we dug ourselves in. But how did this happen? In a feat that seemed almost impossible, the U.S. transformed its educational system in the 1950s from one that was inaccessible to those in the lower and middle income brackets into a system that allowed anyone with a drive and determination to succeed to enter it. This incredible change culminated in the monumental achievement of Neil Armstrong's giant leap for mankind just a decade after it had begun. And since that time, since 1969, when a man laid footsteps on the moon, a blind obsession with profits has repurposed higher ed 
as a debtor's prison, weighing down not just the young, but their parents alike, and saddling all living generations with debt until they die. So let's start at the beginning, taking a deep dive through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, up until Ronald Reagan gets into office, in a series I'm calling The Debt Sentence. This is part one, Sputnik, Spending, Economic Voodoo, and the Seeds of a Student Loan Empire. When it comes to debt and credit, the two terms are often closely linked. At its best, credit can be an investment in your future self, providing you with the resources you need to achieve your goals and reach your full potential. In contrast, debt is when the lifeline can quickly become a noose around your neck, dragging you down and holding you back from achieving all that you can be. And student loans are no different. They offer a vision of what you could achieve if you only had the means to make it happen, but they also can do the opposite. Student loans are the embodiment of mythical visionaries who believed in investing money into education as a means to lift society rather than education being a simple pursuit of one's own personal development. The point of this episode isn't going to be about taking a position that's left or right or even center. Opinions are abundant with regard to student debt, but opinions and solutions, they're two very different things. And solutions aren't possible given the complexity of this issue without information and context. The reason student debt is one of America's most emotionally charged topics right now is that it's not just one issue. It's a bunch of different problems, all intertwined, masquerading as one. Included are economic justice and racial justice, because student debt is a massive issue for people from low-income backgrounds who often have to borrow more money to pay for school than their wealthier counterparts. And because people of color are disproportionately likely to attend school with fewer resources, they also tend to graduate with more student debt. Partisan politics play another factor. Republicans often argue that student loan debt is a personal responsibility issue, while Democrats tend to see it as a broader economic problem. This bleeds into the consumer economy. With millions of Americans owing billions of dollars in student debt, the student loan crisis has started to affect the purchasing power of an entire generation of the economy. And finally, there's education financing. The way our country funds higher education is one of the root causes of the student debt crisis. Tuition has been rising faster than inflation for years, way faster than inflation, and states have been cutting back on their funding for public colleges and universities. This is especially true after the 2008 mortgage crisis meltdown we experienced. This is leaving students and their families increasingly responsible for paying tuition costs out of pocket. All of these factors and emotions make it difficult to solve, but we need to start somewhere, which means getting informed about the different problems. Only then are we going to find real solutions. Look, it's not like Joe Biden can just wave his magic presidential pen and make some of this debt go away, right? 
Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. You crazy son of a bitch, you did. In a significant move to help struggling college graduates, Joe Biden announced, I guess two months ago, that he would waive student loan debt for qualifying Americans. The vision or the plan, which was just laid out in the clip you heard, goes into effect through something called the HEROES Act. It's not the first time that Biden or his predecessor, Donald Trump, has used the HEROES Act concerning student loan payments, but the Biden administration is defining powers much more broadly. Most legal experts believe that the current U.S. Supreme Court may be skeptical of agencies exerting broad powers like these in the absence of congressional consent. I wonder why they think that. This could lead to a protracted legal battle against Biden's actions, which we're starting to see the fruits of already. Though this certainly will help a significant number of students, barring the challenges coming, it doesn't address a system that incentivizes colleges to act more as hedge funds than education centers. Nor does it curtail scamming loan service providers or a flagrantly corrupt government. This all-powerful triumvirate of institutions has created a system that will still profit off of drowning its citizens in future debt. Every baby born in America has a dollar sign and an interest rate for this cartel. The stakes are high for borrowers due to draconian government collection powers, including the seizure of the earned income tax credits and Social Security payments. Even those who can make some payments face severe damage to their credit reports or the ability to even get credit for critical purchases such as cars and homes. These types of powers, even the most evil corporations in the world, would blush at the way this government has taken advantage of its citizens. The history of student loans in America is a saga that begins with good intentions and ends, as so many stories do in this country, with the federal government holding a trillion-dollar bag of other people's money. Before World War II, American colleges provided financial aid directly to their students. As World War II was nearing its bitter end, Franklin Roosevelt and Congress feared what 16 million veterans coming home would have to face. And they were looking to avoid what happened during the Great Depression when unemployed World War I servicemen marched on Washington to demand the unemployment payments and bonuses they were promised. This had resulted in bloody clashes between police and protesters. So the government was worried that employers wouldn't be able to hire all these veterans quickly enough. So they devised a plan, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, better known as the GI Bill. The GI Bill promised each veteran unemployment checks and loan guarantees to buy homes, but it also gave each soldier a voucher up to $500 to go to the college of their choice. This would buy society time. Veterans could get the education they needed to find good jobs, and society wasn't forced to absorb them into the workforce overnight. Some cried out that it was socialism. Why wouldn't they? I mean, if they're not socializing the banks and the big corporations, then it has to be socialism, right? Okay, and they also felt that students should have to work their way through college like everyone else. 
But in the end, Congress decided that the benefits of giving returning soldiers what was essentially a free education outweighed the costs. The GI Bill did much more than expected. According to John Thelen, a professor at the University of Kentucky and author of A History of American Higher Education, the GI Bill was an unexpected success, enrolling just under 8 million veterans, which was 10 times the number the authors of the bill had predicted. The benefit made college affordable for a group of veterans who would never have thought about going beyond high school. In doing so, it helped create a new generation of educated Americans, many of whom went on to have successful careers and start their own families. Making higher education accessible helped create a more educated workforce and set the stage for America's continued growth. The National Defense Education Act took this a step further. Intending to help improve the quality of education in the United States, from elementary to graduate school and encourage students to pursue higher education. Especially in areas like mathematics, science, and foreign languages, the Act provided loans and grants to students and states, established language centers, and helped fund research into new educational technologies like television and radio. Ultimately, the goal of the NDEA was to ensure that the United States had a highly educated workforce that could compete in the global arena. In his bold declaration of a national goal of full educational opportunity, President Johnson further expanded the government's role in education, calling this legislation a key which to unlock it. This sweeping move represented a new weapon in his war on poverty, as he offered a massive infusion of funds to support programs for the poor at all levels of education. Whether you're talking about elementary schools or universities, it's clear that Johnson was committed to ensuring educational opportunities for everyone who needed them. The Higher Education Act was signed into law on November 8, 1965, and passed amid the civil rights movement, pushing for greater access for women and minorities. This law was a landmark piece of legislation that helped to level the playing field in terms of higher education opportunities. Prior to its passage, women and minorities often faced discrimination when trying to gain access to colleges and universities. But the Higher Education Act changed all that, giving more people a chance to pursue their dreams of getting a college education. From the time of its passing until the 1970s, the federal government began investing in college grants and other forms of student aid. But on the other end, colleges and universities also stepped up, digging deep into their own pockets to provide additional support. And while this was happening, states kicked in with assistance as well. And the result was that college was no longer something just entitled to the wealthy or elite. It was for everyone. See, in the 50s and 60s, education was viewed more as a public good that would benefit society. And this shift in thinking paved the way for later reforms that made education more accessible and affordable to all. And this is what I find funny when older generations talk about working their way through college. They tend to neglect or mention that they were truly the only recipients of college made affordable. It was part of a nationwide vision to expand college attendance, one that hinged not only on loans and grants, but also bolstering funds at all levels. Funding from the states helped keep the tuition low or free in some cases. Yes, 
America has had tuition-free college before you can look it up. The federal government would then pitch in to cover the associated costs. So it's hard for me to take some of these politicians and previous generations seriously on the subject since most of these graduates through the early 80s emerged from college with little or no debt on the backs of World War II heroes and that society, which allowed them to get assistance for their children while they were attending college. But here's the thing. There was a crucial difference in the way the arrangement worked before. In the past, the government used treasury bonds to lend directly in prior years, which would keep the rates low. But the new legislation extended these loans, but the government wouldn't fund the loans. Instead, student loans would be issued by financial institutions backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government meaning that banks and other lenders could offer them at lower rates than they could regular loans. This system became known as the guaranteed loan system. So to break it down as simply as possible to understand the student loan landscape, in a direct lending program, the government makes the loan directly to the student and services the loan through third-party servicers like Navient. You but in the guaranteed lending system, a bank or other financial institution originates and services the loans. Oh, groovy, smashing, yay, capitalism. <laughs> in either case, student loans were viewed as the perfect way to invest in America's future. They allowed you to borrow money to pay for school, and then you would start the repayment after you graduated. Student loans were once such a good bet that many schools actually made loans to students. Cue the music. This dates back to 1840, when Harvard University offered the first loans to students. Before the government intervened, colleges and universities acted as lender, using some of their own money or sometimes working with the banks to extend loans to students. And the default rates at these colleges were very meager. This allowed students to get their education without accruing mountains of debt. But these loans weren't for everybody, just a very select few and elite. So to extend this investment to the rest of society, the government got involved, and it worked exceptionally well for a time. But including the banks and eventually Wall Street thugs into the mix set up that classic moral hazard situation where lenders could make risky bets with other people's money secure in the knowledge that if things went wrong, the taxpayers would be left holding the bag. So the question is, why did Johnson make this arrangement with the banks? It's simple, because Johnson was a victim of his own agenda. The government was already churning through cash on Johnson's Great Society programs, and the Vietnam War was beginning to ramp up. From an accounting perspective, if the government itself made the loans, it would appear very expensive and cause the deficit to rise. But off the books, Doc, we don't want people seeing their actual taxes at work here. Plus, we'll need money later. Goodbye, Cambodia. Thanks, Bugs. To avoid this burden on taxpayers, at least on paper, he convinced the banks to make the loans instead, which made the program appear much cheaper. Looking at Johnson's dealings, it's clear he was playing a risky game, trying to beat the system with voodoo accounting while also thinking he was crafty enough to strike a deal with the bankers and come out ahead somehow. But in the end, it seems Johnson miscalculated, not realizing that 
even the devil himself understands, no one comes out owning more souls than a financial institution. By 1965, the banks were actually in the student loan business without any federal assistance. They did this because a group of corporate CEOs had created a loan insurance fund called the USAF, using private donations from philanthropists, schools, and other sources. Banks would lend to students. If the students defaulted, the fund reimbursed the banks. It was highly effective. However, USAF's default rates were low for a few reasons. One, they didn't just let anyone have the loan. Banks would review each student. They would look at credit history. If there was no credit history, they would look at where they were from, and they would look for red flags. They also refused to lend to freshmen who were at the highest risk of dropping out and defaulting, and they often straight out just turned down black applicants or poor students. Johnson had proposed a similar agency for student loans in a 1959 bill. The plan was to have colleges borrow from banks at a 4.5% interest rate, and then the colleges would lend directly to the students at a 5% interest rate. The school, in turn, would keep half the proceeds for every loan and then put the other half into a pool. The money would be combined with federal tax dollars to cover the losses if a student failed to repay the loan. That actually makes a lot of sense. For Johnson, reviving this plan would make banks, schools, and the federal government share the risk of student loan, and the government can now include those students who are being excluded by the USAF system. Under this proposal, all three institutions would have something at stake if students weren't able to repay their loans. And this risk would discourage banks and schools from handing out exorbitant loan amounts to students that would be unable to pay them back. As a sweetener, Johnson urged Congress to guarantee the loans to the tune of 80%. The idea of the guarantee was that this wasn't going to cost us any money, according to Johnson's secretary, Joseph Barr, but he would later admit they'd been horribly wrong. So why didn't we go with this original vision that Johnson had? Well, the answer is a man named Charles, without an E, Walker. Charles Walker, a friend of Johnson's and the head of the American Bankers Association, the industry's top lobbying group, loved cigars and bourbon, but he loved nothing more than padding the industry's profits. And he was skeptical of Johnson's enthusiasm for federal college loans. Walker had a natural disdain for the federal government, which he viewed as an obstacle to the ability of his 14,000 member banks to make profits. With the help of his lobby, Charles Walker couldn't help but craft a bill that would completely upend the student loan system. With this legislation, a massive new federal bureaucracy would allow Charles and his cronies to reap huge profits at the expense of working class students, all while evading any meaningful oversight or regulation. And firmly tucked within the bill, a statute was left which read, the government insures not less than 80% of of the unpaid principal of loans insured under the program. Nice. This was known derisively in Washington as the Banker's Bill. This nefarious piece of legislation embodied everything that was wrong with our corrupt political system. A bill that would open the door to hand over billions of taxpayer dollars to piggish banks and shady financial institutions without so much as batting an eye. 
So in true American fashion, the banker's bill was the one that passed. It sounds like good old American-style capitalism to me. So these banks would receive subsidies from the government to ensure they got their money back if the borrower defaulted on the debt. The government would also partner with nonprofits and state agencies to make this arrangement work. And then the government would pay out 1% of each loan to an agency that managed it. And if the borrowers stopped paying, the institutions would reimburse the lending bank and act as collection agencies, pocketing collection fees to the tune of 16 cents on the dollar, all while the federal government was backing all of them. It was an easy payday for financial institutions. Lenders essentially had no underwriting, meaning you didn't really have to qualify. You didn't have to have a particular academic or income background. You simply had to be college age. You can see the cracks in the system were there from the start. Congress and the president made a deal with the banks because they believed no one would lose. The system was based on a number of unrealistic assumptions in today's society. One is that people with higher education degrees will be immediately employable in their chosen fields, regardless of changes in the job market or economy. Even those with credentials that once meant guaranteed income, like let's say a law degree, are no longer safe from these types of fluctuations. Another assumption that was wrong is that people with higher degrees will stay in their fields and avoid accidents, illnesses, and other problems that could derail their careers. Given these unrealistic expectations, it's no wonder that so many graduates struggle to pay off their loans each year. By the beginning of the 1970s, America was coming out of an economic boom that was helped by an influx of, of college graduates whose skills made the economy more innovative and efficient. Living standards had risen rapidly, and college graduates were among the group reaping the most benefits in terms of increased earnings. President Nixon believed strongly in the power of education to improve people's lives and wanted to make college affordable for everyone, regardless of their income. However, the Federal Reserve's easy money policies caused inflation to skyrocket and student lending had come to a halt. Some of these banks were even running out of money to make more loans. Despite the federal guarantee to the program, there was still a lot of uncertainty about how college would be funded in the future. How it was normally set up? Banks would sell student loans to investors who would then collect and keep any payments the borrower made. But investors had become increasingly nervous about student loans thanks to the uncertain interest rates. So within the Higher Education Act, Congress had agreed to pay up to 10% on each student loan. The idea was that students were paying 7% and then the government would pay the rest. But with inflation and interest rates on other financial products rising, investors feared that 10% wouldn't be enough to make them money. President Nixon's advisors proposed creating a new nonprofit entity to lend to students, just cutting out the banks directly. That would actually save the government tens of millions of dollars in interest payments that it sent to the bank each year, which would have gone to the students in the form of scholarships. But the banks now had a powerful ally at the Treasury. That's right. Our good friend Charles, without the E. Walker, was second in line at the Treasury. In a scathing memo, read here. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. I think it went something like that. But I think that was more of the tone of it than what he actually wrote in the memo. In the memo, Walker criticized the proposal and insisted that banks stay in the program. 
Some members of Nixon's cabinet suspected that the Treasury was more concerned with the interests of bankers than those of college students, according to Nixon aide Chester Finn Jr. So Walker proposed that Congress create a corporation infused with taxpayer cash to provide money to banks. The agency would be modeled after Fannie Mae, which Congress had created during the Great Depression to buy mortgages from banks. Finn would go on to write, Few of Nixon's other advisors objected to Walker's arguments, and the administration went with Walker's idea. In Congress, lawmakers were skeptical. Some balked at the idea of bolstering banks with taxpayer money, particularly when it came to funding education. Bank lobbyists stepped in to save the day, arguing that young Americans would be shut out of universities without Walker's proposed agency. Bowing to pressure from lobbyists, Congress hastily crafted a bill that enacted Walker's vision, going as far as copying some paragraphs out of Fannie's bill without fully understanding what they were doing. Congress essentially guaranteed profits for this monster and its bank partners without any corresponding oversight of the lending process. And with no skin in the game, and smelling the blood of teenagers' future gains, they would put a mirror under your nose, and if there were fog on it, you'd get an instant loan. The name of this entity? The Student Loan Marketing Association. But everyone referred to her as Sally May, and she would become a beast too impossible not to feed. Sally May sounds so sweet, like she bakes me apple pie. It's not like it could ever become a money-sucking vortex of evil. The evolution of the student loan crisis can be traced back here. Government-sanctioned entities, or GSEs for short, are created by the United States Congress and designed to promote credit availability while reducing borrowing costs for targeted sectors of the economy. Here, they did that, but they also created that moral hazard we spoke about. The next year, Congress passed a law allowing Sally May to borrow almost as cheaply as the federal government itself. This gave Sally May a tremendous advantage over other institutions, be it public or private, the advantage allowed Sally Mae to keep its costs extremely low. And as a result, Sally Mae was part of a circuitous route between lender and borrower that kept the cost of student loans low. If the student defaulted, the guarantee agency reimbursed the bank all of the loan principal plus all the accrued interest, no questions asked. The federal government then reimbursed the guarantee agency 80% of the loan principal, but no interest. That was until 1976. That year, with some states refusing to set up guarantee agencies, Congress sweetened the deal by agreeing to cover 100% of the financial costs. So basically, Sally Mae was a for-profit company overseen by Congress, and it was essentially a vehicle where the Treasury Department infused Sally Mae with taxpayer money. Then Sally Mae gave that money to banks and schools to make loans to students. And this is when higher education became kind of a big for-profit business, where colleges went from being a so-called public good to this giant industry that makes money because Congress set this up to be a for-profit company. And in a true exercise of American capitalist monopoly, Sally Mae's board were a mix of colleges and banks, and as such... Both groups benefited handsomely from the company's new student loan systems. Colleges increased their costs as they could now confidently rely on loans to bail out their insane budgets. And banks raked in the profit every time those loans were repaid. So they were about to embark on making money on the front end and the back end. 
There's going to be more of Sally May in later episodes. So there's a book called The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe by Josh Mitchell. And a lot of research came from that. And it's a great book, so I would recommend it. I will put it in the description. But in the book, Mitchell catches up with the first head of the Congressional Budget Office, Alice Rivlin, who in 1969 had done a study with a group and famously championed loans over scholarships. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I'm not going to get into that here. He wanted to get her reflections on the system. And what she said later on was, we unleashed a monster. See, the student loan program was intended to help people pay for tuition, but the moves by Johnson and Nixon introduced banks into the process, and then by creating this Frankenstein named Sally Mae to help the banks get money to lend to students, college became more intertwined with bankers and Wall Street and investors. Even the schools themselves had financial interests in getting people into debt, and in many cases, into debt that they couldn't repay. 1976 didn't just see the government subsidize and protect all the soon-to-be bad actors within the student loan market. The culmination of a huge conservative push to end tuition-free higher education finally culminated that year when President Ford withheld federal aid from New York City until it eliminated free tuition at City University of New York, or CUNY. This move effectively ended the 129-year policy of not charging tuition at CUNY and dealt a major blow to the idea of free public higher education in the United States. That year would also see a new bankruptcy law take place, the first of its kind, making it harder for student loan debtors to discharge their loans in bankruptcy proceedings. I declare bankruptcy! Listen, 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 listen. Fuck off, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. Get out! Get out! This law was based on false claims that student debtors were abusing the system. Time for a history lesson again, so cue the music. The U.S. Constitution gives Congress the power to enact bankruptcy laws for the benefit of debtors who are United States citizens. This grant of authority is what led to today's bankruptcy code. Under the Articles of Confederation, states acted like independent countries with their own money and laws regulating trade. This created intense confusion and conflict among the states and their residents, giving the national government power over interstate commerce, including creating a uniform bankruptcy law, was an essential ingredient in economically unifying this country. Bankruptcy is thus a fundamental constitutional right. In 1800, the United States passed its first bankruptcy legislation, paving the way for a system that would provide citizens with a fresh start by discharging their debt. The system has its roots in biblical times, when scriptures prescribe that creditors must release what they have lent to others every seven years. The principle of debt forgiveness has been adopted by religions worldwide and manifested in legal systems across cultures. The modern bankruptcy system allows for the discharge of most types of debt with a few exceptions. So, so things like tax debt or debt incurred through criminal activity or child or spousal support debt are not eligible for discharge. Student debt is included in this category today. Bankruptcy proceedings can be traumatic, but they offer people a way to start anew. By freeing them from the burden of crushing debt, Bankruptcy allows people to begin rebuilding their lives. But it's not that simple when it comes to student loan debt. 
politicians have made it harder and harder to discharge student loan debt. And the process is different depending on which state you live in. If you attempt to discharge your student loan debt in bankruptcy court, you'll be subjugated to questioning from opposing lawyers about your spending habits and lifestyle choices like how much you spend on lunches or if you donate to your local churches. It's a morality play unlike anything else in the world of personal finance, and it's not easy to come out on top. When Congress passed this law in 1976, making it harder for student borrowers to declare bankruptcy, the law stipulated that student loans could not be discharged in bankruptcy court until five years after the commencement of the repayment period, barring any undue hardship. Here's the thing. Remember before when I said the original law was based on false claims that student debtors were abusing the system? This was based on recommendations from a congressional commission formed in 1970 to study the issue of student loans and bankruptcy. The commission found that while a small number of loans were in default, less than 1% were discharged in bankruptcy. Despite these findings, Congress decided to make it harder for student loan borrowers to declare bankruptcy. And the move has had lasting consequences for students struggling to pay off their loans. In essence, lawmakers were responding to fears that graduates with mounting debt might use bankruptcy as a way to get out of paying back their loans. But those concerns proved to be unfounded. And then came along in 1979, the 1979 Act. Very original. And this did two things. First, it made it so that a student loan made by the government or made by or made under a government-funded program or nonprofit institution was non-dischargeable. This was to make sure that loans made under the federal Perkins loan program received discharge protection. So this was basically a federal loan, but made by the school to students, and the funds for the loan program came from a pool contributed by both the government and the school. That sounds a lot like Johnson's original idea. But before this act, it was arguable that bankruptcy court could decide this section didn't apply to these types of loans. So Congress made sure to change the loophole. Second, also changed the bankruptcy code by extending that five-year period to start when the student loan borrower took a deferment or forbearance. So this change made it more difficult to tell when that five years had passed. This change made it more difficult to tell when that five years had passed. So you couldn't just look at when the last loan payment was made and then just add five years. So now you had to actually pull the payment history for the student debt and try to figure out if there were any deferments or forbearances and go from there. It just extended the process and made it a little bit harder. So what have we learned? So here's what we learned. A number of factors undermined the student loan program from the start, be it runaway spending or shady accounting to keep it off the books or bankruptcy laws that went against every other bankruptcy law that was supposed to protect consumers. But in the end, it's genuinely a symptom of a much deeper problem in our economy, the increasing dominance of finance over everything else. For decades now, American banks have been looking for new and creative ways to make money, and one of their favorite targets has been student loans. In the generation past, Congress privatized the student loan program in order to give more Americans access to higher education, but this move has only served to further Wall Street's profits, 
creating a system of college finance that has actually perpetuated America's cycle of inequity and inequality. Over time, Congress has enacted one law after another to make student debt the most toxic kind of debt for American consumers and the best kind of investment for bank and debt collectors alike. Now everyone involved in the student loan industry profits off of students, from the banks to the private investors, all the way up to the federal government itself. This absolutely convoluted system was in place solely to keep the student loan program off the federal budget in the first place. But the cruel irony of it is, to give the mirage of spending restraint, Congress actually increased taxpayer costs. It had to pay lenders tens of millions of dollars in interest each year simply for lenders to front the money to students. Almost from the beginning, the quilt to cover the treasury had to be patched. John F. Morse, the former head lobbyist for the American Council on Education, wrote in 1975. He continued, nobody planned it that way. There were just too many seamstresses called into work on it. We could scarcely over the years have devised a more confusing, more expensive, or less efficient program than the one we now have. And he's right. The federal government had severed the financial link between borrower and lender, and the only money at risk were federal tax dollars. It's not hard to believe that Johnson or Nixon and many of the congressmen believed in using college as a way to better people's lives and lift society, but in giving away all its power to money interests, we served the wrong master to do that. On that fateful day in 1965, at the University of Southwest Texas State, where Lyndon B. Johnson stood proudly, he must have been reflecting on his own humble beginnings as a child of a struggling family who were forced to abandon their farm and move to a nearby town. Growing up in poverty with no access to basic amenities like running water or electricity, he knew that college was his path to achieving success and security. And even after facing hardships as an adult, he was able to secure a bank loan in order to afford his education and achieve his dreams, becoming a college graduate and ultimately rising to the highest office in the land as President of the United States. During his speech, he would go on to explain, In a very few moments, I will put my signature on the Higher Education Act of 1965. The President's signature upon this legislation passed by this Congress will swing open a new door for the young people of America. For them, for this entire land of ours, it is the most important door that will ever open, the door to education, and this legislation is the key which unlocks it. I don't think that man, the man who signed that legislation, foresaw the opportunists waiting on the other side of that door. I want to thank everybody for listening to me for a little while. What I'm hoping is that we all came away with a little bit of a basic understanding of how this started and can maybe see the picture of where it's going and how we got to here. There's going to be more episodes dealing with this. I want to get to a point where we understand the whole system to where we are today. So if you enjoyed the episode, I usually don't ask this, but if you can share it on your social media posts or with people you know or think might have an interest in it. And I know you don't have to do that, but I would be eternally grateful to anybody who does that. Thanks again, and talk to you soon. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. 
The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. Everything stuck.